Acts chapter 4 is where our scripture reading will be this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 22. If you'd all please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all, In the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. Father, I pray now that you would bless the reading of your word to us this morning. As I teach it, I pray that you would give me clarity of mind, help me to uh, simply expound and explain and teach what it is that the text of Scripture before us uh, has to instruct us on. I pray that each one of us would be challenged and encouraged uh, from this text of your word this morning. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Spirit Supplied Boldness in the face of opposition. Here we will see for the first time in our study of Acts how followers of Jesus responded when their message was met with resistance. Uh, So far in the first few chapters of Acts, everything has been going great for the church. Uh, They've been preaching, they've been uh, seeing people saved, the church has been growing and thriving. Uh, There's unity in the church, there's a great spirit there, they're rejoicing, praising God, everything's going great. And beginning here in Acts chapter 4, we see that they finally are are getting the first bit of opposition. 
Specifically this morning, we're going to see how the Holy Spirit supplied Peter and John with boldness to stand firm for Christ, even with the threat of punishment for doing so. The text this morning falls right on the heels of last week's, uh, so I'll need to remind you of what happened in chapter 3 in order for chapter 4 to make sense. At the beginning of Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were headed up to the temple to pray during the hour of prayer. They saw a lame man was there begging. Uh, Every day this man was carried out uh, to that spot where he would ask those passing by for alms. We know from the text that he was over 40 years old, that he had been unable to walk his entire life. And everybody who came to the temple regularly knew him. Uh, He was there every day, laying there, asking for money. They'd seen him there day after day for, for presumably for years, begging at the temple. On this particular day, Peter walks right up to him and says, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. The man leaps up to his feet. He's suddenly and completely healed. He begins walking and leaping and praising God. And this draws a crowd very quickly. Uh, The Jews here at the temple that, that came every day for this hour of prayer, they recognized the man. They knew that he was lame his entire life. And so they are amazed that he's suddenly able to walk perfectly. Peter then takes the opportunity to preach the gospel to this crowd that has gathered there uh, to see what's happened. He tells them right away that he didn't heal the man in his own power, but that Jesus had healed him through Peter. And this miracle was an attestation to the fact that Jesus had been raised back to life. And so Peter reminds the people of their guilt in condemning Jesus uh, to death. He confronts them with the fact that they had rejected the Messiah that God had sent to them. And then Peter urges them to repent of their sins and be forgiven. And this brings us to our text this morning. Right in the middle of Peter's speech as he's giving the gospel to these crowds of people, the temple authorities come over and put a stop to it. Verse 1 says, as they were speaking to the people, uh, presumably this is John and Peter because it says they were were speaking, so probably both of them uh, were telling these Jews that Jesus had been raised back to life and they needed to repent and follow him. It says, as they were speaking... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So while they're here talking to these crowds of people, uh, the priests, captain of the temple, and Sadducees come over. The captain of the temple will be uh, referring to the commander of the temple guard, so sort of like the head of security on the temple grounds. The Sadducees, you remember, are a sect of Jews, and we ran into them a little bit in Luke's Gospel. Uh, But up in the northern part of Israel, in Galilee, where Jesus was from, where he spent most of his years of ministry, uh, the Pharisees were the major religious leaders up there. They were the ones teaching in all of the little synagogues all over Israel. But here in Jerusalem, the Sadducees controlled the official political structures of Judaism at this time. Uh, They were the majority of the members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, They controlled the temple. And so the Sadducees had basically cozied up to Rome, which earned them favor and freedom to basically function as the judicial authorities in Jerusalem. They could arrest people, they could imprison people. The only thing that they had to get Rome's permission for was if they wanted to execute someone, like in the case of Jesus. Aside from that, Rome basically let the Sadducees rule over the Jews in Jerusalem as they saw fit. Because of this arrangement and the positions of power that they held, The Sadducees wanted no issues with Rome, uh, no uprisings, uh, nothing that would cause them to lose their their positions of power. So they had an interest in preserving peace in Jerusalem 
and stopping any sort of commotion before it got the attention of the Roman government. And so when they hear that Peter and John are teaching in the temple, there's a huge crowd of people gathered around. There's this guy jumping up and down. Uh, That's enough to warrant some investigation. And so they come over to see what's going on. Verse 2 says, They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So three issues there that were causing them to be greatly annoyed or frustrated uh, with Peter and John. First of all, they were teaching. Uh, You may recall from our study of Luke's gospel that these same guys were really upset with Jesus when he came to the temple and started teaching. Uh, They came up to him one day and asked, who gave you the authority to be here on the temple teaching? And so once again, they're frustrated with Peter and John for the same reason. These guys are are fishermen. Uh, They aren't even educated properly in religious matters. And yet here they are teaching on the temple grounds, standing up teaching these crowds of people on the Sadducees' turf. It would be sort of like if some random person uh, walked through our door this morning, stood up here on the platform and started teaching. Uh, We would all be like, what in the world? You know, who do you think you are uh, coming into our church and and taking it upon yourself to teach people? Uh, We'd find that very disrespectful and kind of awkward for somebody to have the audacity to take over the service. Uh, Something like that is going on here. And so the Sadducees are frustrated at the fact that Peter and John are teaching. Notice also, though, in verse 2, it says they're not only annoyed that Peter and John were teaching, but it also says they were preaching about Jesus. This would be the second thing that frustrated the Sadducees. Remember, these are the religious leaders who got rid of Jesus just a couple of months ago. Uh, They sentenced him to crucifixion. And now, here are his followers preaching in the temple and talking about Jesus. And they must have been thinking, good grief, I thought we took care of that guy. Uh, How is he still causing problems for us even after we killed him? Uh, But not only are they teaching about Jesus, but verse 2 says they're proclaiming in Jesus resurrection from the dead. This would be the third problem that the Sadducees would have, because to them this was heresy. The Sadducees rejected any notion of an afterlife. Uh, They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. And so, as I've said before, that's why they were so sad, you see. Uh, This is their problem with what Peter and John uh, are saying. This is why the Sadducees are greatly annoyed. Uh, They come over to this huge crowd of people, and there's Peter and John claiming that Jesus has been raised back to life. Uh, Of course, they don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, so they're frustrated that this false teaching is being taught on their temple. And so verse 3 says, They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So Peter and John, they're taken into custody, awaiting trial uh, the next morning. I imagine this was a very discouraging time for Peter and John. They were probably thinking that this was going to be a Pentecost part two, uh, where thousands of people are saved, baptized, out of the church, following this miracle and sermon by Peter, and everything would be just great like the last time. Except this time, they find themselves sitting in a jail cell, wondering what is going to happen to them. By the way, although Peter and John didn't stick around, uh, get to stick around and see the results of the preaching, verse 4 says, Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This could mean 5,000 more were added to the church at this point, which we already know was over 3,000, or it could be read as saying that the total number of the church in Jerusalem grew to 5,000 total. Uh, And and notice there, it says 5,000 was the number of the men. So this would just be 5,000 households. Uh, This wouldn't be counting their wives, their children, and so forth. So the church is is thriving. Once again, 
Uh, following this miracle and preaching by Peter, there's a massive influx of Jews who are converting to Christ and joining the church in Jerusalem. Verse 5 says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. As I've said uh, before concerning Annas, Caiaphas, and the family here, uh, I always think of the godfather, uh, the mafia family. This is sort of what, what these guys are like. They're the political powers in Jerusalem. They're corrupt. Uh, they're willing to execute innocent people in order to preserve their power. And so these are guys that you wouldn't mess with. It says on the next day, Peter and John, they're being put on trial before the Sanhedrin. This is basically the Supreme Court of Jerusalem, consisting of 70 members. These are the religious authorities. You see the mention there of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest. These are the same people that Jesus stood on trial before just a few weeks prior. Peter had stood a distance away and watched Jesus on trial, where he was eventually condemned to death. And I have to believe at this point, Peter and John are thinking, that's what's going to happen to us. We're about to die. Maybe we'll be sentenced to crucifixion, just like Jesus was a few weeks ago. Verse 7 says, When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Uh, the rulers here probably don't really know a whole lot of what happened. Uh, they've just been called together for this meeting to hear the trial of some guys who caused a ruckus down at the temple yesterday. So they're trying to establish the facts. And they start by asking, by whose authority did you stand up in the temple and teach and heal this lame man? You're on the temple property. Who authorized you to do this? Verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now please note there the filling of the Spirit. You remember that Peter had cowered in fear just a few weeks before this when he was asked if he was a follower of Jesus. He had denied knowing Jesus three times that night. But here, Peter displays boldness even in the face of death. These are the same guys who sentenced Jesus to die, who handed him over to the Romans just a few weeks before. And yet here, Peter is bold in the face of opposition. And the difference from Peter two months ago and Peter here today is now he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to the text in just a moment, but I want to remind you of something Jesus told his disciples back in Luke chapter 12. He said to them, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So he had told them, you're going to stand on trial for my namesake. Don't try to figure out a clever defense. The Holy Spirit will give you the words. Again, in Luke chapter 21, Jesus said to them, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And here in Acts chapter 4, we see the beginning fulfillment of this promise of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit uh, would supply them with the words to say in the moment of persecution. Back to our text, verse 8 says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So he starts off in verse 9 by saying, hey, what we did was a good thing, wasn't it, guys? I mean, this poor fellow couldn't walk for 40 years, and now he's standing here uh, perfectly healed. I'm not sure what you have to be upset about. But in case you're wondering how this was done, I'll just tell you. It's by the name of Jesus, you know, that guy that you killed. Uh, you condemned him to crucifixion, but God has raised him back to life. And he's the one who supplied the power to heal this man. It was by the authority of the name of Jesus and by his power that this lame man is able to walk. Notice also that Peter intentionally pits them against God. You killed him, but God raised him. Uh, same thing down in verse 19 when Peter says to these religious leaders, should we obey you or God? He's intentionally and clearly pitting them against God, uh, the very one that they claim to represent. These are the high priests, the leaders of Judaism. And Peter is accusing them of opposing God. And if you think that was enough to get Peter in trouble right there, he's just getting started. Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, this is really something, and you'll uh, miss what Peter is saying unless you remember what Jesus said about being a cornerstone back in Luke chapter 20. This took place right here in Jerusalem. Uh, follow this closely, Luke 20, beginning in verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? You see, they had the very same issues with Jesus teaching on their temple. They don't like an unauthorized person uh, teaching here. Verse 3, he answered them, I, will, I, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the parable, uh, the people this parable, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant. They also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. As we said when we covered this parable in Luke chapter 20 some months ago, the owner in the parable is God. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel. The servants being sent represent the prophets that God sent to Israel over and over throughout its history. Many of them uh, were rejected and mistreated. And so finally, God sends his son. And in the parable, as the tenants see the owner's son coming to them, they say to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus asks, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus there quoting from Psalm 118, the stone rejected by the builders has become the cornerstone. And verse 18 says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. This is a threat. If you guys kill the owner's son, just like you mistreated all the servants that he sent you, he's going to crush you. And after Jesus gives this severe warning, they killed him anyway. And so Peter says to these same leaders back here in Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You guys rejected Christ, and now you're going to face his wrath. For them, this would be true in the coming years as the Romans would invade Jerusalem and destroy the city. In the process, hundreds of thousands of Jews would be killed. The temple would be completely destroyed. And so these Sadducees lost the power and prestige that they had worked so desperately to hold on to. But beyond all of that, all of these men who rejected Jesus would face his wrath eternally as well. Those who refuse Jesus as Savior and Lord will face him one day as judge. The only way to be saved is by turning to him now. And so Peter says in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you reject Jesus, you have rejected your only hope. Now here we have one of the clearest statements in the Bible about the exclusivity of Jesus. And for us today, this is where we especially need to pray for this same kind of spirit-supplied boldness. It's easy to say that you're a Christian. It's easy to tell people that they can be saved if they'll repent and believe the gospel. But what's really difficult and what really takes boldness is to tell them that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And if they reject Jesus and his offer of forgiveness, they will be judged by him eternally. This is probably the most controversial Christian doctrine in America today. Because our culture is all about tolerance. We're allergic to absolute truth. And so in this postmodern world in which we live, it is increasingly unpopular and will in fact offend and enrage many people when a Christian has the audacity to say, Jesus is the only way of salvation. And without becoming a Christian, you're headed for hell. That one concept will make you many enemies. You'll be called a hateful person. You'll be accused of thinking that you have a corner on truth. But in reality, it isn't hateful if it's true. If I have cancer and the doctor tells me the only chance you've got is to go through chemotherapy, that isn't hateful of him to say if it's the truth. If I have, uh, <clears throat> he's actually being kind to me in urging me to do what needs to be done. Imagine if I said, well, yeah, maybe chemo would work, but I'm just going to drink a bunch of carrot juice for the next few weeks, and uh, we'll see if that solves the problem. Would the doctor tell me that's fine? Would he say, hey, if that's your truth, go for it. Follow your own path. Not if he's a good doctor. If he's an honest doctor who truly cares for my well-being and knows that the chemo is the only chance I have to live, he's going to tell me in clear and straightforward terms, this is your only hope. This is your only chance. You will die unless you do this. That's not him being hateful or intolerant. That's him being loving. That's what I need to be told. I trust the point that I'm making here is obvious. If Jesus is truly the only way of salvation, 
then we must not only tell people of the salvation offered in Jesus, but we must also tell them that it's the only way of salvation. Verse 13 says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now that last sentence has normally been understood to mean that they had a form of deja vu. Uh, As they're listening to Peter and John, these uneducated fishermen from Galilee, they see their boldness and they're reminded of a carpenter from Galilee that stood on trial here just a few weeks ago. And so they recognize these men to be trained by Jesus in carrying on his ministry. Uh, That's possibly what the sentence means, but I don't think that's all that it means. And uh, I will readily admit here, I checked several commentaries. Nobody seems to agree with me on this, so feel free to take it or leave it. Uh, But I think what Luke is telling us here is that these religious leaders, seeing the boldness, the confidence of Peter and John, they recognize that they must have been with Jesus after his resurrection. In other words, as they're listening to them boldly speak with certainty about the resurrection of Christ and the salvation through his name, they're thinking to themselves, these guys really believe that he's alive. They must have seen him. Uh, We know from Matthew 28 that when Jesus rose again, the Roman soldiers who were guarding his tomb came and reported what they had seen to these same religious leaders. Verse 11 says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. When they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. So the Sadducees, the chief priests, the leaders here in Jerusalem, they knew that Jesus was raised again. They had tried to cover up that fact with a lie. And so back to our text in verse 13, I think that when they see the boldness of Peter and John and they recognize that they had been with Jesus, that's saying that they realized that Jesus had appeared to them alive. And that's why they were speaking so clearly and convincingly. Verse 14 says that these rulers, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I mean, what can you say? Uh, The guy couldn't walk his entire life. They all knew him. And here he is standing next to them in perfect health. So they send out Peter and John in verse 15. says they commanded them to leave the council. They conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So now they have a backdoor meeting to decide what are we going to do with Peter and John. Uh, By the way, you may be wondering, how does Luke know uh, what was said in a secret meeting of the Sanhedrin? Uh, First of all, it's possible that Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea communicated uh, to the disciples what was said here. They were both members of the Sanhedrin and followers of Jesus. But I think it's actually more likely that Paul himself uh, may be the source. We know in just a few chapters when Stephen stands and and preaches to the Sanhedrin, Paul is there. Of course, this is prior to his conversion. Uh, He may have been a member of the Sanhedrin. And we know that Paul was actually involved in the execution of Stephen at that uh, particular occasion. And so it's quite possible that Paul was here during this meeting, and thus after his conversion to Christ, he passed along to Luke the gist of what was being said in this closed-door meeting. In any case, the rulers basically say, we can't really punish Peter and John 
because they haven't broken any laws. And right now, <clears throat> uh, they're, they're heroes for healing this lame man. Everybody's rejoicing and, and amazed at the fact that they did this. But we also can't just let them go and continue teaching that Jesus has been raised back to life because that undermines everything that we believe and everything that we teach. And so they just want to shut these Christians up. Stop talking about Jesus because they had rejected and condemned Jesus. These religious leaders had told the people of Jerusalem that Jesus was a blasphemer. He needs to be killed. And now for them to admit that they were wrong and publicly repent of what they had done, that wasn't something they were willing to do. So they tried to save face. In verse 18, it says, They called Peter and John back in, and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Okay, we're not going to punish you this time. Go on about your day, fellows. But uh, no more teaching about Jesus. Uh, no more of this stuff about him being raised back to life. Just drop all of that, and we'll let you go. Verse 19, Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So basically, Peter says, uh, we can't do that. God has sent us into the world with the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Uh, we must talk about it. Again, the Holy Spirit and Peter and John supplied them with boldness to refuse this offer. It must have been tempting for them at some level. Uh, Stop talking about Jesus. You can go free. We'll leave you alone. And they say in response, we cannot do that. God has commanded us to tell the world about Jesus, and we're going to continue doing that regardless of what you say. Verse 21, when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And so once again, these religious leaders are captive to public opinion. People are amazed and thrilled at the miracle Peter had done. And so it wouldn't be in their best interest, at least right now, to punish Peter and John for doing something objectively good. And so they let them go this time. <clears throat> As we close this morning, consider the boldness of Peter and John in the face of opposition on trial for their life uh, before the very same people who had killed Jesus just a few weeks prior. They basically said to these rulers and chief priests, you're wrong about there not being a resurrection. You were wrong to reject and kill Jesus. There is no salvation apart from him. If you don't repent and turn to Christ, he's going to crush you. And also, no matter what you say or how you threaten us, we're not going to stop preaching the gospel. That is spirit-supplied boldness. Peter didn't just muster up this courage in, in, uh, from himself. This is the same guy who before had denied any association with Jesus. And now here he is on trial for his life, and he's incredibly bold and courageous. This can only be attributed to the Holy Spirit filling Peter. You and I ought to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit in us and pray for this same kind of boldness to preach the gospel of Jesus, no matter what opposition we may face. We're going to cover in the next few verses next week, but down in verse 29, if you just want to glance down there, you'll see uh, the first thing they do after being released from custody, they gather with the church and pray. And in verse 29 specifically, they ask God to grant them boldness to continue speaking his word. 
I've said before that for many of us today, instead of praying and asking God for a perfect opportunity to share the gospel or to invite someone to church, whatever it may be, instead of asking God to give us an opportunity, we really ought to be asking and praying for boldness and then just do it. We can always come up with reasons to remain silent, but perhaps the real reason is the one that we don't want to admit. We're just afraid, afraid of what people will think of us, afraid of how they will respond. Let me encourage you to step out in faith. Share the gospel with that friend or family member you've been praying for. Invite that coworker or neighbor to church. Uh, let people know you're a Christian. Don't hide that fact out of a fear of what others will think of you. Speak boldly. And the promise of Jesus to you is that the Spirit will give you the words to say as you yield in obedience to him. Three reasons we must preach the gospel. Number one, because it's true. As Peter said, we can't help but uh, speak of the things that we've seen and heard. If you know that Jesus forgives and transforms lives, if you've experienced the power of the gospel of Jesus, share that because it's true. Number two, we must continue to preach the gospel because we've been commanded by God to do so. Should we obey God or man? God's given us a commission to go into the world with a message of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We must give the message that we've been entrusted with. And number three, we must preach the gospel because it is the only way of salvation. If there were other ways to earn favor with God, to be forgiven, to have eternal life, then maybe it wouldn't be so important for us to preach this message of Jesus. But the truth is, Jesus' name is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. And if Jesus is the only way of salvation, then those who follow Jesus have an obligation to share this truth with others.